Good morning. Welcome to the Center for Strategic and International Studies. And this is an event that's uh, done jointly between the CSIS Global Food Security Project and the um, United Nations Food and Agriculture Organization of the Liaison to North America office. It's part of a series that we do a number of events. And, and we're always, it's such a great partnership because we're able to, to think about the topics that we know need to be discussed in a bit more depth in a public or a private forum. And this one was a, a quite easy topic to come to consensus on because we haven't done a lot on this. And clearly, um, in today's context, when you look at the rising number of people that are hungry in the world, you look at climate change impact, you look at the number of, of, of displaced or forced migration, um, displaced persons or those who are being forced to migrate. Um, it's very clear there's a lot of linkages between that. So we wanted to bring together experts to look at this from a variety of perspectives. I'm gonna be um, exceptionally short in my welcome um, this morning because I wanna get right to the conversation. Um, I, I do wanna just point out in terms of when we say migration, we, we recognize there's a continuum and a broader definition of what that can mean. And we'll be talking about um, both uh, voluntary migration in terms of those driven um, by you know, seeking new opportunities, as well as forced migration um, and those looking, you know, who are driven out by conflict or crisis. I do want to mention that um, I've been intrigued by this topic for quite some time. I, I wrote a report in collaboration with our Human Rights an Initiative here last last year called Stuck in Limbo, and we went to Djibouti and we talked with um, Yemeni refugees and we talked with um, Ethiopian migrants to, to learn about their, their journey, their struggles, um, and to do some research and thinking into how Djibouti as a country was dealing with that influx, but also to see where there was some food insecurity linkages. And it was quite moving for me. I mean, I, I lived in Ethiopia for three years and I knew that a lot of young men you know, left um, in search of new opportunities. But I'd never really sat down and talked with um, one young man was a Kadar who was 12 years old and he had walked for six days with, in flip-flops <laughs> um, in search of trying to, to go to Saudi Arabia um, to get to earn more money for his for his livelihood or I met a, a woman in you know Yemeni refugee in the refugee camps there who um, really struck me in terms of she came from middle class and was used to cooking fresh vegetables and fish for her family every day and here she was in a refugee camp showing me you know her bags of lentils and saying what do I do with these bags of you know rice and and staple crops that, you know, she's not used to having to, to figure out how to feed her family. Um, and a lot of those stories have really stuck with me. So I'm looking forward to today's conversation um, and thinking back to that time for me and then thinking forward of how um, our research team here might tackle this in, in some new ways. Um, but to help frame the conversation and also very specifically part of what we're here today to talk about is the FAO's most recent report, the State of Food and Agriculture Report, which comes out every year, but the focus this year, of course, is on migration, agriculture, and rural development. I see on the chair, as many of you grabbed the report that we had out there or the executive summary, and we will be diving into parts of that today, so I hope you have a chance to read that. But to help us to do a quick overview of that is my dear friend Vimlindra. Vimlindra Sharan is the director of the FAO um, office here um, that is the liaison to North America. He's a very thoughtful leader. He's a great collaborative partner, and he can sort of um, start to, to, to tease out those details and talk Talk to us about that report to help frame our discussion. Filmandra?
Thank you, Kimberly, and good morning, ladies and gentlemen. Let me uh, join Kimberly in welcoming all of you to this event today. Uh, we have a great uh, array of speakers, the keynote speaker and great panelists, uh, who will delve deep into these issues of migration, agriculture, human rights, etc. Let me begin by uh, quoting Secretary General of the United States, uh, or the Secretary General of the United Nations. That's the midterm effect. So. <laughs> uh, Antonio Guterres, he said, and I quote, migration is a historic and multifaceted phenomenon involving humanitarian, human rights, and demographic issues. It has deep economic, environmental, and political implications. It generates many different, legitimate, and strongly held options, opinions. Not always the strongly held are legitimate, not always the legitimate are strongly held, unquote. I think this last sentence, not always the strongly held are legitimate, and not always the legitimate are strongly held, I think it really is the story of migrants. So we have to understand that migration has been, is, and will always be a part of our evaluation, evolution, and development process. And it is imperative that our perceptions and understandings are informed more by facts than by opinions. So for 2018, which Kimberly just mentioned, and a copy of the report I think most of you have with you, is an attempt by UNFAO to throw light on differing contexts and multiple facets of migration. It is an extremely timely publication, coming as it does when we have a widespread negative perception about migrants. And that is feeding into a narrative of xenophobia, intolerance, and racism. The publication has brilliantly discussed the context, cause, and path of migration, and calls out to restrain us from a cookie cutter or one size fit all response to deal with it. Contexts and causes are, causes are different, and so should our, be our policy prescriptions. The underlying message somewhere is that government policies should be aimed to maximize the benefit to migrants and to societies, and not towards reducing or accelerating migration. Somewhere that message comes out quite clearly if you read the report. The report also clarifies the importance of internal migration versus international migration, the importance of rural-to-rural -rural migration, and the impact of migration on women, both who are left behind and those who do migrate. It disabuses us of many of our ideas about who bears the brunt of international migration. Uh, it may surprise you to know that as far as refugees are concerned, 85% of the refugees are still staying in developing countries and are not in developed nations. It goes on to also point out that 38% of the international migrants are moving from one developing country to another developing country and not from developing to developed. So these are, these are facts and figures which have come out very clearly in the report. It talks of rural to rural migration being a very important part of both internal and international migration with many of the rural folks being so highly dependent on agriculture, the report has rightly pointed out the huge economic impact which migration from rural areas has on agriculture, has on food security, has on the economy of the region. And it calls for a coherence between policies dealing with migration, policies dealing with agriculture, and policies dealing with rural development. It also, it, it, 
towards the end of the report, it also comes out with a prescription to follow what it espoused in the 2017 edition of SOFA, which is a territorial approach to development, because that is the way to perhaps contain the forced rural migration to urban areas. If the migration is out of choice, fair enough. But if it is a forced rural migration because of economic conditions, climate change impacts, et cetera, et cetera, the territorial developmental approach espoused so well and argued so well in so far 2017 is the right way forward. It is also pertinent to mention that migration does find mention in SDGs. Under SDG 10, Migration has been placed right there with target 10.7. And it is important for us to realize that its placement in SDG 10, which calls for reduction in inequality between and within nations, has acknowledged that migration is a path towards less inequality within and between nations. So it's extremely pertinent for us to see migration in terms of the opportunities it presents and not given to the xenophobic political narrative about migration. That must end. We have to look at migration as a path of development, as a fact. So let me stop here and close by just mentioning that migration is a fact and will not change. What can change is our perception. I think all of us sitting here have a duty to change perception about migration and not about whether migration is going to be there, how do we control it, how do we reduce it. That's not the real story. So I uh, welcome you all once again. I am sure that we are going to have a wonderful discussion today. Our keynote speaker, uh, Matt Reynolds, who I have the honor of introducing, is the regional representative of the UN Refugee Agency to the United States and the Caribbean. Mr. Reynolds' distinguished career includes more than 30 years in government service, humanitarian response, oversight, and management. Prior to joining UNHCR in 2017, he has served as North America representative to the UN Relief Works for Palestinian refugees in the Near East. So he, he is an expert on migration and refugees and stuff there. A graduate of the Georgetown University School of Foreign Service, Mr. Reynolds spent 17 years in numerous senior positions in both the U.S. Senate and the House of Representatives and was instrumental in drafting and enacting foreign assistance and trade legislation. He subsequently served as U.S. Assistant Secretary of State, Legislative Affairs, and received the State Department's Superior Honor Award for Service. Ladies and gentlemen, I have for you Matthew Reynolds. Uh, thank you. Good morning. Um, and thank you, Kimberly. And thank you to the Center for Strategic International Studies. I appreciate being given the opportunity to speak to you today and would like to applaud CSIS's ongoing and vital work in thinking about how we can better respond to pressing global food security issues, especially as they affect refugees and other forcibly displaced populations. I know you'll get into the nitty-gritty with, with the very expert panel, so I'm going to keep things at the, at the higher 50,000-foot uh, level. Um, 
I'd like to note that some of your own CSIS colleagues have recently traveled with UNHCR to Lebanon and Iraq, um, where they were able to gain additional insight firsthand into this concern. And those field visits provided them with the opportunity to observe the plight of Syrian refugees living in Lebanon and of Iraqi internally displaced persons and the effects their presence has on host communities and some of the ways UNHCR and our partners are working to assist and support these groups. I'll provide a few comments today on UNHCR's perspective on global force displacement in the context of food security and its impact on agriculture and on the compact, uh, global compact on refugees. And while I'll be focusing specifically on a population of concern to UNHCR, that is forcibly displaced persons, as opposed to other voluntary migrants um, that are the remit of our UN sister agency, the International Organization for Migration, IOM. Many of the actions and objectives I hope to touch on are uh, clearly impact both um, populations um, and uh, in both populations. Today's conflicts are increasingly complex and protracted, and they include many more actors than we used to see in the past. National and foreign armies, ethnic or religious militias, insurgent groups, and other non-state Armed actors, gangs like MS-13 and narco-terrorists come to mind. A refugee's journey to a country of asylum, a place of safety, often puts them at risk, um, at increased risk of disease and undernutrition. These already complex situations are impacted by the global confluence of trends such as climate change, natural disasters, desertification and, and deforestation, extreme poverty, poor governance, food shortages, energy deficiencies, all of which can compound forced displacement around the world. The result? We have over 70 million people are now forcibly displaced around the world, more than the populations of California and Texas combined. Add to this the estimated 10 million stateless people, also part of UNHCR's mandate, and we have a total population of concern around 80 million people. That's nearly the size of Germany. And it falls into various categories. 25 to 26 million are refugees, and as was pointed out, 90% of them live in lesser developed, are fled to lesser developed countries, not the rich north. 40 million are internally displaced persons. That's a huge number, all within internal. We think of the refugee crises in, in places like the Democratic Republic of Congo. It's mostly an internal, or Colombia, it's mostly an internal IDP, as they're called, internally displaced persons issue. There are 3.1 million asylum seekers. Over 800,000 of those are in the United States alone. 16.2 million people were forcibly displaced last year. That translates into 44,500 people each day, or one person every two seconds. So that's the same as the population of greater Metro Los Angeles or, or the Netherlands. Increasingly, these, these crises and these uh, movements are protracted. You look at the Palestine refugee, it's been 70 years. Afghanistan, 39. Syria, going on eight. These are increasingly large and fast movements. The Rohingya surge into Bangladesh with 700,000 people were forced to flee in just a few weeks last year. Just a few weeks. And Venezuela, we're now looking at millions on the move. One trait almost all of these populations have in common is food insecurity. Of course, to varying degrees. In a recent UNHCR survey of acute malnutrition in children from 6 to 59 months throughout 98 refugee sites, we found in 21 sites showed global acute malnutrition that exceeded the emergency threshold of 15%. 32 sites held stunting rates exceeding the critical level of 30%. And 52 sites had rates of anemia exceeding 40%. 
The presence of global acute malnutrition, stunting, and anemia obviously continues to be a persistent challenge in many sites, and it's a place we need help. So the question is, what are we doing about it? An integral part of UNHCR's mandate is to ensure proper and adequate nutrition for those under its care. There remain many barriers to refugee food security, and thus many refugees remain reliant on humanitarian assistance to meet their basic needs. Their journey to a country of refuge or asylum can put them at increased risk of disease and undernutrition. Undernutrition is a growing concern among refugee populations in many countries. It is often exacerbated by changing environmental, sanitation, and shelter conditions in the refugee's country of origin. The difficulties only continue once they arrive in the country of refuge. Often, it is illegal for refugees in host countries to work or to own property or businesses or farm land. Refugees may be restricted inside camps with limited access to markets, arable land, and natural resources. New arrivals may have little or no cash savings, seeds, or livestock. Additionally, refugees often have limited access to national services and social protection systems where they may exist to support their basic needs. Nutrient-rich and fortified foods are often among the first forms of aid to be cut, owing to their much higher cost. And as we know, reductions in food and other assistance can lead to decreased levels of attendance in school among school children, increased child labor, increased labor exploitation, survival, sex, and other risks. Now, when we think about large refugee operations, we tend to imagine the sprawling camps in rural areas with all of the associated issues I just mentioned. But the majority of refugees, including, for example, 90% of Syrian refugees, do not live in camps. They are in urban or semi-urban areas residing in apartments or other accommodations. Here, as in the camps and rural border settlements, nutritional challenges exist. New solutions like cash-based initiatives are employed, which address the interconnectivity of issues and allow refugees to purchase food in local markets, supporting both their nutritional needs and local host community economies, which of course helps promote acceptance. With all of these factors, the complexities, the protraction, the urbanization, and so on, UNHCR has led the development of a new approach to refugee crises, the Comprehensive Refugee Response Framework. This approach is at the center of the Global Compact on Refugees, which will be adopted by UN member states next month. This new approach is organized around four different objectives. First, to ease local, to ease pressure on local communities in refugee hosting countries, because we know nine out of 10 displaced people are in their own countries or in the country right next door. When we mobilize resources to support displaced people, we aim to benefit the community as a whole, including the hosts. We work with and involve other UN agencies like the World Food Program, FAO, and others to address food security and durability. Second, the, the Global Compact is to enhance refugee resilience and self-reliance because empowering those displaced not only reduces the burden on host communities and mitigates the risk of instability, but can also unlock the potential of refugees to contribute to their new communities and ultimately reintegrate upon return home. Third, to expand access to third country solutions, including traditional resettlement, but also alternatives to admission, such as humanitarian visas, educational opportunities for refugees through grants and scholarships, and labor, mo labor mobility opportunities, such as temporary work visas, through, uh, through in, in, in which also we can identify refugees with skills in demand. 
and fourthly, to support conditions in the countries of origin for voluntary return in safety and dignity because resolving a humanitarian crisis and enabling return inevitably requires a political resolution and investment in peace building. Many of these objectives, as you're figuring in your mind, hey, wait a minute, many of these objectives are not really new, but have been applied piecemeal across the globe for years. To build comprehensively and implement this model requires a coherent framework, demands collective buy-in, and requires reliable support. All of these aims and the emphasis on building resilience and self-reliance also obliges us to invest strongly in partnerships, not only with government, development agencies, and traditional actors, but with multilateral and private sector stakeholders less frequently engaged, but most certainly needed, with the humanitarian sector. One example is the World Bank, which has made a $2 billion available for refugees and host communities as part of the IDA grant funding for low-income um, countries. The bank has also created special concessional financing loans for the middle-income ones. We have already seen measurable positive impact on the ground in large refugee-hosting countries such as Uganda, which we'll hear from today, Kenya, Jordan, and Bangladesh. Another example is the corporate world. In Ethiopia, for example, the IKEA Foundation is providing sustainable programs to irrigate farmlands so that refugees and local Ethiopians can share the land, work together to grow crops, to generate income providing mutual support to both the communities, um, to both communities, and that obviously diminishes their, re their reliance on international and national Ethiopian government um, aid. Now these are just a couple of examples of what the CRRF is all about. Already we have implemented two sub-regional frame frameworks in in um, one in the Horn of Africa and the other in Central America, and they're proving that this new approach works. Food insecurity, competition for resources, and conflict are a few of the major items that cause people to flee. And as you know, obviously once people arrive in a country where they seek refuge, food and water are going to be some of the first things that they need. We are humans and we all have to eat and drink. While all of our collective efforts to provide emergency humanitarian assistance and international protection are meaningful, helpful, and positive, in reality, they amount to nothing better than just a Band-Aid. The real solutions to today's ever-growing humanitarian refugee and protection crises are sustainable political ones that resolve conflicts fueling forced flight, contributing to food insecurity, and retarding genuine economic development both in rural and urban settings. All of the humanitarian support in the world, which by the way is pretty significantly underfunded. I mean, UNHCR alone has identified a global need in 2018 of $8 billion and we've received only half of that amount with many crises, especially in Africa, being vastly under-resourced. So this cannot replace real durable solutions. And that, as you know, requires collective diplomatic and political leadership. But those solutions, but as those solutions are being sought, we can do all our part in the, me in the meantime. Look, thank you very much, and I look forward to the panel discussion, which, which, as I said, will much further expand on these and other pressing issues raised by the Global Food Security Project here at CSIS. Thank you very much.
so much. Thank you so much, Matthew, for that. I so many good points that that I that I kind of want to repeat, but I'll, I'll just focus on a few. But I was really pleased to see you make that nutrition connection and, and point out the the undernutrition concerns. Um, here at CSIS, our global food security team is about to bring on a one-year nutrition fellow, and we're gonna be doing a lot more looking at the linkages between nutrition and food insecurity. So that's something that we're looking a lot at. Um, some of your numbers surprised me. I hadn't heard 90% of, of developing countries are the ones you know, embracing refugees. And, and of course, as you pointed out, um, um, talking about humanitarian aid, it's needed, it's under-resourced, but it's not the solution. The solution really has to be sustainable political ones, which I think is a, a really important point. Um, I'm not going to go into depth in terms of introducing our panelists. You you and the audience have the bios. I will, for our, our online um, audience, give some brief introductions. We're going to start with Dr. Rob Voss from IFPRI. Um, uh, Rob is, is you know, the head of, you have to look at your title. Well, head of, head of lots of things, trades and markets and institutions, I think is that's correct, at IFPRI. Um, but the reason we wanted Rob was a number of reasons, but um, he, he spent a bulk of his career at FAO, and part of that included um, working in, in, in a leadership role on the concept note for the, the FAO report you have in your hands. And so what I want to start with, Rob, is asking you, why migration? You know, why, why did you feel like um, that was important to talk about, and what are some of the key messages that we should be thinking about in terms of migration and rural development and how that relates back to agriculture. <clears throat> Thank you, Kimberly. Uh, good morning, everybody. Uh, well, to, to answer in very brief your questions, of course, the migration flows become uh, big and they always have been big, as the report also points out, um, partly because a lot of the, the, the root causes of what we talk about, forcible migration, come from rural areas or rural context or poverty, uh, hunger, uh, but also climate shocks that uh, affect um, um, agriculture sectors the most, and that leads to migratory flows. Um, but also to, um, to understand better what are the implications for agriculture, in some cases migration leads to labor shortages in production and so on. Um, but most of all, um, and that was the reason, so how to bet this better into uh, policy making that relates to agriculture and, and rural uh, development uh, policies of, for which uh, FEO is, is a leading uh, organization. Um, and I think uh, what uh, I hope the report would do, it has done. So. I may take some credit for writing the first concept note, but not for the actual report writing was done by, by the FAO staff uh, uh, after I left. Um, but I think it's, uh, the report makes um, quite a few, uh, I would say, refreshing points and, and that I would recommend. So let me, let me highlight a few points which have already been brought to the fore. First, um, to take uh, that that's, uh, the overall message, right? take a look not as, as migration as a cost uh, or something bad, but there, there can be enormous benefits. So uh, migration has been something there with us all times, and there, there can be enormous benefits for development. And in doing so, the report um, clearly sketches this broader picture. Sylvia Lenbra already pointed that out. It's not allowed just about refugees and forcible migration. Most of the migration is not even between countries. It's within countries. 
people move all the time. And that's a good part of development. So moving out of agriculture is also one of uh, part of these, these processes. Uh, but as the report uh, points out, uh, that most of the migratory flows are internal. And the, the international flows, most of them are between developing countries, not from, uh, uh, from uh, poor to rich uh, countries. And out of that, most of it uh, also uh, originates um, uh, one way or another from rural areas. The second, uh, as I already pointed out, so that, that migration development can be mutually reinforcing. That's another key message of the report. And the third message uh, would be how, of course, none of that will be automatic, right? So if you uh, do uh, more rural development, that then all the choices become uh, uh, better, more positive to people to, to migrate. So um, I think that that's one underlying thing which, which the report manages to do is that Migration policies, therefore, should not be about restrictions at the border or uh, restricting migration. Maybe it should be encouraged. It's good for development, as long as you do it in the right way. Well, let me come back to that point. Sounds like we need to get a meeting with you and some members of this administration. Might be good. Yeah, we'll be happy to. Um, yeah, but as, as the report very rightfully points out, is that if we uh, bring um, better um, agriculture and, and rural development policies, um, that will allow broader development uh, efforts and through that uh, also uh, create new opportunities in other parts of the economy for, for people to make these positive choices uh, where they want to move. So I think the, the key question is uh, moving forward, and so some of these uh, things are brought out in the report very well. Um, how can we get to move the discourse from restrictive policies, stop things at the border, uh, to more developmental uh, approaches? Um, the first thing I think uh, which the report tries to do is to understand better the benefits and the costs of migration. So there are clearly costs to migration, some have already pointed out, for agriculture, there can be emergence uh, uh, of, of labor shortages. Uh, I spoke, uh, it was a year ago to Minister of Agriculture in, in Cambodia, and he was saying, well, we cannot achieve our agriculture growth targets. Why not? Because we have no productive workers left in the key parts of the, in the rice production uh, of agriculture because of the pool factors from uh, the textile industry, uh, particularly productive workers, including um, uh, <coughs> women uh, moving to those uh, sectors and then leaving the land to be worked by, uh, um, by the, older, uh, the, the older, the parents and, and older people. Uh, so that's giving constraints. But understanding those factors will help uh, also improve uh, the way we look at uh, migration. <clears throat> There's other forms of great ignorance. So how many people of you know that actually over the past years, um, the net flow of people migrating between the US and Mexico is negative, meaning more people moving south than, than north. Right? So why are we building this wall? Right? So, um, and I think also the, the, what, there's a box in the report, which, which actually we prepared as IFPRI, that looks at the impacts also for the US economy. If that is more restrictive, if there would be less rights for, 
for Mexican workers. It's, it's the uh, important share of, of, uh, of agriculture and other sectors in the economy. There would be less space for them. <clears throat> and even if there would be deportation, what would be the implications of that? So if you just take the extreme example, if say if all undocumented Mexican workers uh, would be sent back or uh, taken off the rights to work in the U.S. economy, um, the estimates uh, we, we, we show that that could lead to a loss of, of national income of GDP of about 6% as a one-off cost. Right, and why is that? You could say, well, then if those workers are no longer there, then other workers could, could, could replace them. U.S. workers could replace them, but that's not how not how it works. They're basically they're complementary to the uh, U.S. labor market, as many studies have have worked out. So there would be loss of productive capacity if that moves out. So understanding these things better will help, uh, hopefully, improve uh, the discourse. Um, second, I think that the report makes very clear, so what, what, what could be done to make migration more uh, um, uh, manageable in terms of that it becomes a choice for people and it becomes linked to, to development. Uh, remember, I already pointed out a range of um, proposed interactions that uh, have been proven to help um, uh, make migration a more benign factor. That could range from um, in, uh, reducing the factors that uh, cause forcible migration. People basically move because of, uh, uh, of hunger, of, uh, of conflict situations, and so on, to, 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 to manage that, and actually uh, help them uh, by improving their productivity, making them more mobile by investing in their skills, their education, um, and so, so that they can take better opportunities of moving out, um, um, as, as well as uh, broader developing, de development through, and particularly because of a lot of the, the pressure uh, people to, to migrate is in Africa, where demographic pressures are high with a lot of young people, to leverage the development of food systems in particular to generate a lot more employment to, uh, to help doing that. I think that the third aspect to help improve that is, is the recognition that there's not a one-off solution, a one-size-fits-all solution like restrictive measures. Not even the developmental part has to be tailored to, to the, the context. And let me not go into that, but I think the, the report gives, gives a nice uh, overview of, of types of uh, interventions. Um, so let me just, just make a few closing remarks of issues to, well, where we should do a lot more. Uh, first, I think um, what I already mentioned is to make more insightful what are the costs and benefits of, uh, of migration, uh, how to do this in practice and uh, uh, feed the public discourse uh, in, in that direction. The second thing, and uh, uh, I think that's where the report may fall a bit short, um, it gives all good recommendations, but not a clear sense of the urgency of the problem, right? So there's lots of flows in Africa. There's 20 plus million young people entering the labor market, and particularly rural labor markets, every year, right? So if there's not sort of a speedy solution to it, then the perceptions of migration being a problem and just flooding uh, 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 other countries uh, uh, and creating 
problems in terms of be it refugee camps, be it um, um, uh, moving into uh, across borders towards developed uh, countries uh, and uh, creating um, issues uh, issues there. So giving a better sense of, of how we can transit uh, more quickly, so providing these better perspectives, then also the perceptions and the aspirations may change quickly. So um, when I was still with FVO, we, um, we did a survey in Senegal among young people who was part of a youth employment program, and the staggering result of that survey was, was a representative survey of all uh, people in the category between 15 and 35 years of age. And the staggering finding was uh, when the question was asked, well, what, where do you see yourself going towards physically or economically in the, over the next uh, five years? And 75% said abroad, particularly in Europe, right? So that's, that's enormous. So, so how can we change these aspirations uh, in terms of uh, development? Um, so I think this, this focus on, on, on addressing the root causes is important. And um, I think and let me that bit be me. My final point is that having said that, we should avoid that it becomes too much of sort of uh, an issue we can address through uh, not just the development policy, but through development assistance. Right? Because you have to see it as a problem that needs proper interaction between the rich and the poor countries. So, as already mentioned, the U.S. economy stands to lose right? in certain in certain ways uh, by restricting migrant labor. Right? So, there can be other solutions and finding replacements, but that also has a discussion: of what would that mean for the agriculture sector? Can they compete without? the migrant labor, and the same applies to uh, much of the services sector uh, in this country. So it's, it's to think about it, but also think about uh, what it was a big discussion uh, when uh, the more recent wave of nationalist uh, tendencies came about is, well, what about the aging populations in the rich countries? How can we change the, the rapidly increasing dependency uh, ratios right now? When I was uh, working before at the, the UN in, in New York, we, we did some a book and a whole report on aging and development. The part is also looking at how much migration you would need in order to keep dependency ratios uh, stable, and that would be probably more than any country could uh, would like to afford in terms of if it's a one-off process. But we have to think about it. So how can we keep um, economic systems? Uh, not just the um, the economy itself, but pension schemes and uh, and health systems viable um, uh, without also thinking of uh, of uh, of migration uh, uh, in terms of better distributed uh, overall uh, population. Uh, but the point uh, I want to make is, is is that also the international frameworks, including the um, UN Global Compact, should think about migration uh, not just as um, something that's a problem in, even if we want to address the root causes that should be solved by development policies, but it should be uh, solved as part of uh, international uh, cooperation. So um, where does it lead us to? I think that the, the report is very um, uh, is well written. It gives us an optimistic note that there can be uh, solutions. Um, but I think my, my message here is that what we should think about is not migration 
as as a problem, not even as a phenomenon that we should restrict. Think, I think the future will be more migration. The report also makes clear that when, with developments, you get more mobility yeah? within within borders, but also across borders. So the thing to do is to how can we prepare ourselves to uh, manage greater mobility, greater flows of labor and, and people in, in general in ways that uh, is uh, uh, consistent, benign, and sustainable development. Thank you. Thank you, Rob. Um, I like the optimistic tone, which I don't think is the, the current tenure in, in most of our political discussions, especially as we are in this midterm, post-midterm um, world in the U.S. right now, but especially looking at it as a benefit. You know, that seems to be a twist when it shouldn't be. Um, I want to dive in deeper once we, we hear from more of the panelists um, on particularly that the why we have those perceptions and, and misunderstandings and, and understanding a bit more of what we can do in terms of the cost benefits, but, but we'll wait for that. Next, I'd like to hear from Dr. Kanta Kumari Rigaud. Um, she is the lead environmental specialist within the World Bank, um, focuses a lot more um, on the Africa region, um, and, I, and I wanted um, um, Kanta to come to, to help us think about the climate change aspect of this, which is part of the conversation that, that not only cannot be ignored, but need to be, needs to be very much front and center, understanding it better, just as Vinlinder said that migration is a fact, climate change is a fact, it's all intertwined. So Kanta, help us understand how that fits within this dialogue. Thank you, Kimberly, and thank you all for the opportunity to share some thoughts with you. I think this is an extremely important conversation. I think the FAO report is clearly important and puts agriculture and people at the center and has highlighted the challenge of more food insecure people and more malnourished people. At the heels of that report, we had the 1.5 IPCC special report. And that report, sadly, has a very dire message you know, saying that if we do not keep our temperatures, our global temperatures below 1.5 degrees Celsius, and we are unlikely to do that, the impacts on the natural and the physical systems, especially on agriculture and livelihoods, will be quite significant. So it was in that context, I think, as a development institution, where we understand that climate change is having impacts on development that we undertook a study to look at how potent was climate as a driver of migration in the context of, of, of the landscapes and the countries. What we found, I think, was um, a situation where we applied the best demographic climate and, and biophysical uh, information that we had, and we arrived at a number of about 150 million people within the three regions that we looked at, which was Sub-Saharan Africa, South Asia, and uh, Latin America, 150 million people would move as a consequence of climate change, could be moving uh, under the most pessimistic scenario. And what we looked at was actually, uh, these were people who would move as a consequence of protracted uh, impacts on agriculture productivity losses, crop particularly, water stresses, and sea level augmented by storm surges. 
And we know that, you know, f that agriculture is really where everything hits home, particularly for the rural poor, which say, for example, in the context of Africa, you have at least two thirds of the people working uh, on the land and carving out that livelihood. And when the livelihood begins to fail, then I think over time and as a consequence of that, you would find people searching for, for alternative livelihoods. So I think to underscore what Bimlendra said, that migration will happen, and I think everybody has said that. But I think the issue of concern here is the distress-driven migration. We're not so concerned about you know, where people are moving in a voluntary uh, as part of labor movements, but it is distress-driven my internal migration, at least the study that we focus, and we know that it doesn't stop at the borders. So really the question here for us, uh, very briefly, is how do we change that equation? And I think it's important, perhaps this is me being provocative to Kimberly's request to do so, it's not really just addressing migration. Migration is just that symptom or the signal. It's that underlying cause of, of food security, energy security, water security, and development that we are really trying to address. And in that context, I think agriculture is going to be particularly impacted by climate change. And the question before us is, what can we do different? So let me just give you one snapshot of what we had looked at in the report, and then I'll leave it at that and really like to hear uh, from the audience. Uh, we looked at different uh, case studies, but one country that we looked at was Ethiopia. Ethiopia is a country with statistics, at least the demographics that we have. Is, it has a population of 100 million people today. It's a population that is largely rural and agri agriculture-based. And the population by 2050, which is when we, we had projected in our study the, the, the scenario analysis that we did, by 2050. So what you find is by 2050 in Ethiopia, you'll have about 180 million people, depending on which model you used. And with that, there is going to be a huge youth bulge, which if you project the way things are, if agriculture is going to absorb them, that's going to be a tough thing. And at the same time, in the models that we did, which was really done at a very granular level of 14-kilometer grid cell, we find that in the highlands, which are particularly rain-fed, it would be difficult for agriculture to be sustained, and therefore you would have what Mimlendra referred to, that rural-urban migration shifts. So I think the key question to us is, one, I think, to, to Matt's points just now, I think it's really important to handle the crises that are unfolding right now, but it's also important to anticipate that we are in a changing, a new climate normal and a new, a new demographics and new uh, mega trends that are happening uh, in terms of urbanization, rural urban movement. What is it that we need to do differently and how do we make sure that the agriculture sector is, is fortified in a way to meet those challenges so that more people are not displaced, especially internally, because that's where it happens first? And do we have the kinds of durable solutions that uh, Matt referred to, which was more in the context of the refugees, but durable development solutions? I'd like to come back to that in the conversation, but I just want to say that I think the challenge for us is partly to address the current situation, but really prepare and anticipate it because things will change and are changing uh, before us. So let me stop there, Kimberly. Sure. Thank you so much, Kanta. Um, your, your phrase, ag is where everything hits home, is going to be my new bumper sticker on my car. 
Thanks for that. Um, let's uh, move on to Michael Bowaka, who's the first secretary from the Embassy of Uganda. Um, we, we wanted to bring in the field and the country perspective, and Uganda is where I turned first um, because of their very open-door policies of welcoming in a huge number. It has up to 1.25 million refugees in its soil. Um, there was a fascinating uh, New York Times article that came out uh, last week called As Rich Nations Close the Door on Refugees, Uganda Welcomes Them. Um, this came out after I asked Michael. It just happened to be a nice addition. Um, and so wanted Michael to come and talk to us from the Uganda perspective. Um, you've heard Vamandra and, and others talk about it's really the developing countries that are absorbing these. But what's really special and unique about Uganda is it's not just absorbing them. It's, in, it's embracing and it's empowering them. And so I'd like for him to speak specifically about their national policies, uh, whether it's land or others, and how this influx has particularly affected rural communities. Michael? Uh, thank you, Kimberly. Um, good morning, everyone, and thank you for having me here. Uh, Michael, can you press your oh, sorry. Just repeat I that one it. more time? Here you go. Yeah, thank you. Um, we are very honored to be here as Uganda Embassy to participate in this very important discussion. And uh, thank you to Kimberly and the team at CSIS um, for inviting us here. Thank you. Um, also, thanks to the uh, distinguished panel of experts that is here um, for their contribution. And uh, I, can, I must say I'm, I'm really learning a lot. I don't know about the audience. But, but very quickly, uh, back to the point, um, Uganda's experience. Um, Uganda, like many countries in the world, um, is having to cope with this issue of migration. Now, just like, uh, uh, just like Kanta mentioned earlier, migration in, in this sense is really, uh, it is a symptom of a wider problem uh, that really you know, calls us to address and find common solutions to. Um, in Uganda, I can say there are some of the aspects that really cause movement of people. Uh, one, I'd first of all, look at internally. What are the internal dynamics that we are faced with as a country? Um, Uganda is um, a country with about 40 million people. And at least more than half of that population is youthful. And that means I'm talking about the age group of 15 years and below. So that in itself um, creates a very high dependency uh, situation. And um, because of this youth bulge, should I say, um, we have a challenge of creating economic opportunity. Uh, to make sure that there are enough jobs for all this, and the, the, the youth are skilled, and they can uh, be entrepreneurs, they can be productive. Now, um, just rightly as uh, Kanta mentioned, Uganda is a country that lies um, largely on the, on the agriculture. It's our biggest sector. That this employs about 80% of the population. Now, uh, because of the, um, 
large portion of the population that is relying on agriculture, any changes to or constraints faced by this sector certainly affects many people. We have seen a lot of rural to rural migration, especially in areas that are densely populated, where there's, um, a, uh, there's a lot of competition for uh, agricultural land. And because of that, people have to move internally to less populated areas in search of land for the, for the agriculture. Now, um, that, that aside, we also have challenges because of the population growth. And uh, of course, there's pressure on the environment and natural resources. We have, um, because of the uh, population explosion and the you know, high population growth rate that Uganda has, actual growth rate in Uganda is about, you know, about three point something percent, which is really high compared, I don't know what the rate is here in the US, but for a small country like Uganda, it's, really, you know, it's something that um, is a challenge for us in a way that um, because of this high population growth rate, you have pressure on the forests, on the wetlands. You have human settlements encroaching on these. And this also now brings about the issue of climate change because of wiping out of the wetlands to increase space for human settlements, because of deforestation, because of all of these. Um, the climate change, we are now witnessing longer droughts. And because of the droughts and scarcity of water, uh, you have uh, communities that are involved in livestock farming, uh, which have to move now in search of these, in search of water, in search of pasture. Uh, you have communities that are living in uh, highlands where you occasionally have, during the rain seasons, you have mudslides and floods. Uh, so these also contribute to displacement of people and, and certainly inevitably causing them to move. But the third, probably, which I'll focus most on is um, movement of people because of conflict and violence. And in Uganda, we have seen this a lot. First, through our own experience, that especially in the 70s, Uganda went through a, a period of political instability. And because of that, many Ugandans had to flee uh, to neighboring countries as refugees. Now, uh, that said, of course, even prior to the 1970s, since Uganda became independent in 1962, Uganda has been hosting refugees. Now, um, because of the violent conflicts, and which is specific to Uganda because of the region that we are in, if I can mention that, for instance, we have the Democratic Republic of Congo, which is our neighbor to the, east, to the west. You have the South Sudan, which is our neighbor to the north. Uh, Rwanda, which is in the southwest. We've all had violent conflicts happening in these countries and inevitably yeah, people have had to flee across the borders. Now, what is different with Uganda's experience in hosting refugees? One is Uganda's, uh, through our own experience, 
We have understood that refugees are people who come not out, mostly not out of choice, but because of the circumstances they are in. And these are vulnerable groups, mostly women and children make up the refugee populations. And so there ought to be an effort to provide them assistance, but also protection and some basic rights. Now, the refugee policy in Uganda, uh, the legal framework that uh, helps us manage refugees is the Uganda Refugees Act of 2006. Now, under the Uganda Refugees Act, um, refugees, we have, uh, the refugee process takes, um, let me say, three stages. The first stage is the, um, as refugees come in, we have a reception point at which the refugees arrive. And at this point, refugees are registered. They are, um, of course, given right identification. And then this goes to the next step, where, which involves settlement. In Uganda, we do not have refugee, I don't want, we don't call them camps, because uh, communities, local communities, and this is mostly in the rural areas, provide land. Of course, working in partnership with the, with the central government. But this is mostly let the local communities do allocate land to refugees where they can build settlements. Uh, these are usually temporary structures that they, which they'll call home. And um, when they build these structures, they also allocated small areas where they can engage in local agriculture. Now, uh, usually the settlement will be uh, based on where the, the refugee enters the country from. Most of the refugees from South Sudan, the settlements have been in the northern Uganda districts, which are bordering the southern Sudanese border. Those from the uh, DR Congo, it's mostly within the, uh, the western or southwest part of Uganda, which also borders that region. And um, so the, the refugees are given settlements, and in these settlements, the government um, helps them to integrate within the communities. That means um, we extend the services that would extend to our rural communities, also to the refugees. The refugee children have access to our schools. We enroll them in our schools. Uh, they have access to our health centers. Um, they are free to move within the community. They are free to establish businesses and uh, lead, so to say, something that is close to a normal life. Um, so maybe uh, then without, I'll look at the, uh, the open discussion we'll have, but briefly, that's uh, about the Uganda and the refugees and movement of people. Thank you. Thank you so much, Michael, and thank you to your country for integrating those refugees in such a way, and for so long, like you said, since 1962, you are, you do have a lot of neighbors that um, haven't been very settled for a while, and it, it's, um, it's, uh, it's commendable of, of what you got to how, how you've embraced that. Um, I'm going to switch this a little bit different and turn straight to the audience, what I don't normally do, but I'll just say something to think about, which I'll turn back to in a bit, is um, 
you know, we t I keep hearing about perceptions and, and thinking through how do we shift this, as you say, to, to leverage the benefits of migration. And I think I, I want us to think about how we flip migration from a burden to a benefit and, and how, do you, how do you switch that around. And, and I will come back to you on that. But let's turn to the audience now. Um, and raise your hand if you have a question. We'll take three at a time. Um, so if the folks in the back with the microphones um, can bring those up. Um, let's start here at the very front um, both, uh, with both of you. Um, we'll, we'll give the microphone. If you can please stand and state where you're from and keep it brief. We're not looking for another panelist, but we're looking for questions. Go ahead. Most definitely. Good morning. Uh, Larry Good morning. Schaefer, Schaefer Global Management. My question is, um, for private enterprise, we have to focus on return on investment. So following the money, how do you, from initial aid for crisis, because we're talking about crisis response, from initial aid, how do you do the handoff to long-term sustainable development? And then in that responsibility for that money for long-term sustainability, how do you, as Ms. Regal talked about, determine what is a root cause versus what's an actual symptom? Because if you're spending all your money addressing symptoms, you never get to address the root causes. Mm -hmm. And then to determine what from the root causes is economic conflict, all the different indicators that you're measuring, and then implementing a good M&E program to determine if it's actually effective. That was a lot of questions, but those are all very good. Yeah, so that sort of link between the humanitarian and development divide, how do we bring those together? Ruth? Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. My name is Rosemary Segero. I focus on agriculture and rural development in Kenya. Thank you so much for your presentation. Kenya has kept most of the refugees from Uganda, from Rwanda, from Burundi, all more than even Uganda. I've been to Uganda anyway. So looking at what you just talked, what can we do different? We have conflicts here. We have poverty alleviation here, and we have Young people, as you said, what can we do different to change this and to avoid immigration? Like the caravan that is coming, we're just talking, I wanted to ask him, the caravan is on the way coming. They need food, they need to eat. So how do we do different and how can we work together? We, I always ask this different. I've never seen somebody who says, let's work together. I'm working by myself. So how do we make this better? Fight conflicts. Uh, look at uh, refugees, poverty alleviation, and then. So my question is, how can we, or what can we do different as she has said? So thank, thank you, Ruth. I love your passion, but you fly that microphone yes, around. We got to make sure to keep it to your voice as well. Let's take let's take uh, one more at the back. We'll do another round, but um, back to the left with the glasses. Yeah. Please stand and introduce yourself. Yes, Thanks. Uh, thank you. My name is Doug Hertzler, and I'm with ActionAid. Um, and I, I wanted to do, uh, I'm glad the, the uh, representative of the Embassy of Uganda brought up the land issue, because I would ask the panelists to comment a little more on that. It seems like something that is sometimes missing from this debate on migration and agricultural development. And uh, the, the report, of course, from the FAO is excellent in that it deals with flows in both directions and recognizes the potential of migration for rural development, um, as well as, you know, that migration isn't simply an expulsion of people from the countryside that there, that has potential for rural development. But um, the importance of addressing land issues, and if we talk about the political debate in the United States, the migrants from Honduras and Guatemala arriving, those countries have serious land inequality issues that have not been addressed, that are not allowing, you know, 
poor people do not have access to good land. And um, just ask the panelists to, to, if they want to comment on that. Uh, just you know, that was the exact reason why I wanted someone from Uganda here is because of the land issue and, and the land policy. So uh, I'll turn to you guys. Let, let's start with you, Michael, on land or other issues. I'll just ask you can all of you address uh, what you wish of those questions, but also my question of again, how do we flip that perception from burden to benefit, Michael? Yes, thank you so much for those uh, important questions. Um, I'll first address uh, a question that was raised that we know that this, um, the, the issue, the problem of the situation of migration is mostly a symptom of a bigger problem. But what can we do differently? Yes, now um, I'll mention that first of all is to, first of all, uh, come to know that what is the cause of the problem? If the movement of refugees across borders is mostly caused because of violent conflict and because of bad governance in uh, neighboring countries or even within. So the aim is first to address that problem. Now, what are we doing in Uganda? We are actively involved in the peace process, both in the Democratic Republic of Congo, in the South Sudan, and before, of course, in Rwanda, in Burundi, wherever there is um, a situation that is causing people to move across borders for safety. Now, two, uh, can we do it alone? Certainly not. We're working with our partners in the region, within the East African community. We are working with our partners in the region, in the Horn of Africa, uh, because we realize that um, if we do not sort out a problem in the neighborhood, then sooner or later that will be our problem. So um, we're also working with the multilateral institutions and development agencies. Um, we are very glad for the support we get from the UNHCR, from the World Bank, and other uh, development agencies, the EU, uh, the US government. In, two, in 2016, Uganda government hosted um, the Global Refugee Conference in, U in Kampala, Uganda. And we did this to uh, to create awareness, but also bring to the world this, the, uh, this, uh, to the world's attention this problem and how we need for partnerships, for all of us to come together to solve this problem. Because it's not just a Ugandan problem, it's not uh, an East African problem, but it's a global problem and therefore requires a global solution. Now, as you'll notice that most of these refugee hosting countries are actually developing countries with very limited resources and which is true for the case of Uganda, uh, that most of our rural communities, even the Uganda government alone, they don't have the resources to sustain uh, these programs uh, of hosting refugees. So we rely a lot on international support. And um, even as we have learned today that with humanitarian support, it's not enough. It's usually under-resourced. So we need to do more. And um, we really haven't found a solution to that, but we need to work together. Now, um, the question about the land, uh, how, are the, how is the land issue sorted? Now, of course, refugees come into a country, they need land to settle. They need land to derive a livelihood. They will need food. They will need, uh, the children will need education. They will need services. Uh, 
Now, and usually the rural areas where the settlements are uh, actually have a shortage of all these that is required. Now, regarding the land, uh, the government works with local communities in the rural areas. So the local communities voluntarily apportion part of their land. Uh, what I should say that in Uganda, for most of the rural areas, we have communally owned land. And it is really with the support of the local communities. The government can dictate upon them, but has to work with them. But also there's the appreciation within the local communities in the rural areas that these are people in need of help. Uh, for instance, in, in northern Uganda, where we have the bulk of the refugee camps, um, the people in northern Uganda understand that the refugees from South Sudan are actually their brothers and sisters. Because in many cases, the languages spoken on both sides of the border are the same. The, the cultures are similar. And because of the experience of what Ugandans went through in the 70s when we, we had our own political turmoil, and as my sister said, many of the Ugandans sought refuge in Kenya. And the Kenyans hosted us and were very generous. So uh, we learned from one another that these are, these are temporary uh, problems. And usually once the conflict comes to an end, the, the refugees usually voluntarily will return home. And, um, but there has to be that cooperation within the local communities to avail land and support the resettlement and the integration of these refugees, to allow them to come into the schools. Now, of course, one critical thing that which the Global Refugees Pact, uh, I was glad to hear from uh, the keynote speech today. One of the issues is as these funds are given to, to support refugee projects, the host communities also need to be supported because uh, when the refugees come into these local communities, the scarcity of water resources. I mean, they go to the same wells and boreholes, the sources of water. It's the same uh, sources they go to for maybe firewood, for wood fuel for cooking. And if that is not, if there is no effort to support the local communities to provide more of that, then there's going to be a crisis with time. Uh, as agricultural land becomes scarce, and uh, then they will have the pressure on the local communities uh, at some point to reach tipping point. But there is that appreciation that the local communities need to be supported as they also in turn support refugees. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Just maybe a couple of comments um, on, on the questions asked, uh, particularly on how can we do things differently. One project that really comes to my mind is a project that the bank is funding with other partners, which is called the Regional Pastoral Livelihood Project. This project recognizes that livelihood security of the pastoralists lies in the fact that they really have to move and now they have to move even more and differently in search of water and food for their livestock. So this is a regional project that includes Kenya and includes um, Ethiopia and, and I believe uh, uh, parts of Sudan to allow that movement to happen 
in a safe and orderly manner, which includes, you know, uh, provisions for, for movement through visas, includes veterinarian services that are provided cross-border to, to, to manage the diseases, and early warning systems so that the, the, the pastoralists recognize, uh, you know, um, some of the impacts of, of climate shocks. And, and this kind of embedding of the mobility within, within a project in a safe way that is sort of coordinated and managed is really a way of doing things differently. Uh, that's in the context of a pro project. But another sort of package where I think what we are saying is certainly we have to address crises that are happening now, and I think there is no two ways about it. Uh, and here we have, you know, the response agencies from the humanitarians, obviously UNHCR, IOM, and others, and the disaster response. But what I think we really need to look for is a more seamless connection between that kind of response and the longer-term, more durable development benefits. When we looked back at the cohort of, of the projects that the bank has supported on both of the, the emergency response and longer term, we found a coincidence in terms of four packages of things that we do for each of these clusters. The first is that there's always something around social protection. There's always something around capacity, institutions, and livelihoods. And what we found is that in the social protection, once an emergency response, we give a cash transfer to enable that community or the individual to purchase food. But if we took a sort of a more, instead of this sort of reactive response, we started to take a more proactive and anticipatory, it would move from the cash transfer to cash for work. So in the Northern Uganda Social Action Fund, they were able to use the early warning systems, the best satellite data, and avert that El Nino drought crisis that hit many parts of Africa with that early warning and gave them cash for work rather than just a cash transfer. And it really averted a crisis that unfolded in other parts of, of the region. And this kind of proactivity is important. But stretch it a little bit further on this social protection is the movement uh, towards having uh, portable social safety nets so that someone isn't stuck in a place to get an access to that uh, if that situation is so dire, but they have a system where people have been registered and there is social portable social safety nets. Just, just to give you one example around the four clusters that we've thought about where we need to move from the reactive to the proactive, but even beyond the proactive to the anticipatory way of doing things. Just one last response to your question on burden and benefit. I think it's a very interesting way to cluster things. I think the burden is always a perception when it's a cross-border thing. Within the country, when someone is moving, it's part of the remit of, of, of the national governments to take care of, of the population. And I think there we need to do a better job. And then when, when we are perceiving this cross-border in the context of a burden, I'm no expert. But I think when we begin to look at individuals for the capacity, the skills uh, that they bring, or the talent that they bring, and be able to be more productive in that context, perhaps that burden perception would, would be uh, sort of managed better or removed. Uh, but just quick thoughts on that. Thank you. Well, I guess the, the question we raised are pretty tough questions. I wish I had uh, <clears throat> simple answers to them. But that's a bit, maybe that let me be that the starting point, right? So I think the uh, the problem is to change the discourse. What was your question, and how can we get there? Is that the problem is very visible, right? 
the solution is not so visible, it's complex, because it, it ties in with many things. And that makes finding solutions very difficult. So it's, it's like a bad doctor that uh, only tries to help you with fighting your symptoms, and then you, the disease you may have just comes back and comes back, because this, it's, it's more, much more complex to do, maybe more costly uh, as well. So um, I think what we need is um, to get, well, aside from the things I mentioned, right, so get a lot more assessments like this report, but then feed it into the public discourse of well, what are the true costs and benefits. Migration, how have we good examples where you can show that you can make a difference? And also there we have so many missed opportunities. Right, so talk, these days we talk about the caravan coming to uh, <clears throat> to the U.S. right from Central America. Right, so a couple of years ago we had long discussions on on an initiative called the, the Initiative for the Northern Triangle. Right? So it was just the, the the northern part of Central America, so El Salvador, Guatemala, Honduras, and to deal with our problems with the, with the corridor seco, with, with the dry corridors, it's affected by climate change. A lot of livelihoods have, have gone lost as the, uh, the, the, the use gangs, the, the conflict that's going on. And basically, as a, to start up a, a big investment program to uh, reactivate um, rural areas and productive capacity in rural areas through those investments. And uh, I think even the Obama administration set aside more than a billion dollars to support that program. It never came about because it lost political support. It was not so visible. It was going to take a long time. I think that's the problem that we're facing. Right. So unless we are able to tip that discourse and find good examples and, and uh, where we can make these changes. So now, Kant uh, already mentioned, and I just came last week from a big conference we had in Addis Ababa actually on uh, social protection and how that can help uh, uh, build resilience, not just give people some cash and uh, assist them to buy some food, but actually build resilience, right? And I think. Those are the kind of examples we have to, to build on uh, that could help us go from the short-term responses that, that you were mentioning onto the long-term development. So can we find these mechanisms? So it's the same with um, when we have the food crisis, to be quick to provide humanitarian responses. We found it in South Sudan when uh, early uh, 2017, so the famine was declared. Uh, and indeed, so a lot of humanitarian aid came up, and then a few months later, okay, the situation was not good, but it had improved. It was no longer a famine-like situation, but the problem didn't go away. Yeah, the real root causes, because it's still there, people started moving away from the affected areas and into Uganda and other places. So the, 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 the real challenge is how we, can we build those bridges, and uh, so the cash plus, Social protection programs are one example, uh, building, helping refugees or uh, forcibly replaced people to rebuild their livelihoods. So it doesn't matter if, if it's temporary, longer term, but just keeping people in camps is not a solution, right? And, uh, and the same applies for um, also rich countries, but um, my own countries in the Netherlands, it's sometimes difficult, but we we've at least have at least sometimes some discourse saying how can we do it, and even um, 
the leaders of employers' organizations saying, well, the first thing we need to do is give them some jobs. Yeah? So they don't become a social, a cultural problem in, in the country, but it doesn't mean it's, it's immediately solved. So we need long breaths to, to look at it and embed um, migration as, as one of the variables into the development policies and not to focus on migration policies specifically. And that's, I think that's the challenge that, we're, um, that we have to, to face up with. So uh, we need to look at, uh, at initiatives and the report gives quite a few, I think, very good and useful examples of how to build in actions that are really transformative that can help build livelihoods, build resilience, and then out of that you get changes in the economy that will induce more movements of people, but out of choice and no longer out of, uh, out of necessity or out of adversity, uh, why do people move? So I can only give a generic answer, but I think the thing to, 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 to work on as, a, as an international, particularly as an international community, to work with countries where, the, where these problems are, is to find workable solutions and then uh, present them to the fore and, and make that a core part of, uh, of the discourse. Uh, and I guess also um, here in our conversations we have with USAID, that's also become an element, right? So it's a lot more emphasis on resilience building sometimes maybe for the people could say for the wrong reasons right so how can we face our development assistance well people are more resilient and they don't need it anymore but in a way that's what we need what we're trying to do right but um, that's how we can bring it in into discourse but it, it will only work if we can showcase here's are good examples where we've made it to work it works um, and here's here's we should follow through on and uh, unless we do it, we'll, we'll continue doing being bad doctors, fighting the symptoms, and never getting at the root problems, even though we may talk about them, but not trying to solve them. Definitely not easy answers, <clears throat> excuse me, to some really tough questions. I mean, you need global solutions, you need political will, you need to scale up social, social safety nets, you know, we need to fight, you know, very strong misperceptions uh, or about or fear about migration. So it's, it's not easy. Um, but I think at least uh, the more that we have major reports from organizations like FAO talking about this, it does push it higher up the political agenda and, and create some new avenues for discussion. Um, in the interest of time, unfortunately, we're going to have to wrap up. Um, for those in the audience that weren't able to ask your question, please come up and, and speak with our panelists briefly afterwards. Thank you so much for coming, especially thank to our panelists. I've really personally enjoyed this conversation. I've learned some new things, and um, I think it was wonderful, the, the different kind of perspectives that we have. So let's give a round of applause for our speakers. Thank you.